Matthew chapter 2 will be our Christmas Eve text, verses 1 through 12. You can turn there. We've been doing a series for Advent called Creedable Story, and we've been looking at our, some of our core beliefs and how they stem from the story of the incarnation. Um, today's text, we will be looking appropriately so um, at the impact of the birth of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, and from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Lord, help us as we study. Last week, I talked about some of the top 20 Christmas songs that make, you know, many appearances and revenue. Uh, but I would say of the more, the songs that really reflect the, the birth of our Lord, I think one of my favorites would be Mary, Did You Know? Because it's in that, I mean, you, you're, you're brought into what it must have been like for her to hold our Lord. I think about how it, I remember it's increasingly long ago as it was, holding each of our children for the first time. And particularly, I think about our firstborn, he's the first, you know, Josiah, and then holding him there in the hospital and all these subsequent ones. And just not, just that anticipation and also, wow, what, are we, what, are we, what have we gotten ourselves into? But for Mary to hold the baby and have delivered him, as the song says, yet he be the one who would deliver her. Um, it's a powerful story. And in this story this morning, we see that the one who has been delivered is also the one who is king. Um, our title this morning is Born is the King. And there are three things that this text speaks to each of our hearts. 
Number one, the royal conflict. You see, because there are two kings here. The royal conflict, the true and false king, and order and disorder. So the royal conflict, the true and false king, order and disorder. The royal conflict. I asked the kids a moment ago, what would it be like or what would they do to be if they were king for a day? But let us consider, what would it be like to be king? I mean, think about it. You think about all the conflict you have in your life, all of the pushback that you get in your life, all of a sudden it's gone, right? Anytime you say something, people are like, yes, sir or ma'am. Or When you declare something, everyone agrees. Can you imagine that? I mean, you go to work and you're sitting in uh, the boardroom or whatever it is, or you're sitting in a conference room or st- staff meeting and you, everything you say, it's like, oh yes, that's a great idea. Or at home, that's a wonderful idea. Why didn't I think of that? When you request something, bring it, people bring it to you cheerfully. Like there's excitement. You enter a room, everything stops. Oh, she's here or he's here. One of the children mentioned about how a sibling might still be annoying, but let's just suppose that no one would be annoying if you were a king. Why? Because they won't speak unless you give them permission to. Everything you desire, you can have. Someone will bring it. Someone will provide it. You would be above, and everyone else would be below. You would know it, and so would they. You would only have good days because no days would consist of anyone opposing you. By the way, this consideration is certainly not at all like parenting. Um, everyone agrees with you. People bring things to you cheerfully. Um, when you're in a room, people stop and pay attention. No one annoys you because they only speak when given permission. This is not like any of our relationships. It's not like going to work. It's not like being a sibling or any other role. This is a unique role. It's good to be king or queen. That is until another king or queen arrives. What happens then? Suddenly you're threatened. Suddenly, well, because there cannot be two of us. One of us has to be in control. There cannot be two. And therefore, it's good to be king until someone else who is king enters. And that is the scenario of our text. Verse 1, now Jesus was born, notice the words here, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of whom? Herod the king. We have one king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born? What? King of the Jews. Now there's two kings. The day before, Herod would have been that one who everything he said, people would have agreed. Every desire he had, would have been fulfilled. He wasn't having a bad day until this caravan rolls into town. To what do I owe the pleasure? Uh, King of the Jews? Well, that's me. Herod's daily existence had been the aforementioned, but this must have been jolting 
to hear. What do you mean, one who is born king of the Jews? His blood pressure probably rose. His breath shortened. He all of a sudden couldn't speak as clearly. His thoughts started racing. In this one question asked by these wise men, these pagan astrologers, his status, his way of life, his comforts, the way people look at him, respond to him, fear him, all of a sudden are threatened. There can't be two kings of the Jews. There can only be one. And furthermore, what we know about ancient times This would have been, this question and the surrounding phenomena would have been taken very seriously where it says in verse two, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In the ancient world, both the announcement of the arrival of a new king born would be taken seriously. And particularly if that announcement were accompanied by some phenomena like a star in the sky, this is not easily dismissed. There is something going on here, and wait a minute, I'm king, but what do you mean there is another? We don't fully embrace what this text provides for us, what God's word speaks to us, unless we can associate ourselves with Herod to some degree. You see, because, as I asked the kids a moment ago, we all actually want to be king. And in fact, if we were to be honest, we think we are. You see, because internally, we do want our way. We try to get it. We do want to be above and have everyone else be below. We do enter into conflict. So, for example, if in your sovereignty, in your kingship or queenship, it's based on your appearance, your beauty. Everything is good until someone more beautiful enters, right? then you're insecure. If your kingship or reign or queenship is based on your intellect, everything is good. People look at you a certain way, listen to you a certain way, approach you a certain way until someone more intelligent enters. That would be true of your possessions, your wealth, your athleticism, your achievements. You fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you would build a kingdom around, that people would listen to you a certain way, look at you a certain way, respond to you a certain way because of becomes threatened when someone else enters into your space with more of that. And then it leads, because there cannot be two kings, to insecurity, competition, envy, manipulation. The birth of the king of the Jews, as pronounced by these wise men, it required personal reflection of Herod. Am I the true king or is he? And the text invites you to ask the same question. You have to ask yourself, I want to be king. Am I the true king or is he, Jesus? When Herod asked that question, he was troubled. What does that question provoke in you? Let's consider the nature of these two kings, the, the true and the false. And of course, the false being Herod, the true being Jesus, yet also we being false kings of our own lives, kings and queens. What kind of king was Herod? Well, we still have some of remnants of what 
King Herod provided into the world today. In Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall is a remnant of the temple that Herod built. This is Herod's temple, and it still has a small remnant of it. Herod had a public works program, and he rebuilt the massive temple of the Jews, which, of course, in AD 70 was destroyed when Jerusalem was sacked. But when we think of Herod's political ventures, Herod had come into political life. Herod was not truly or fully Jewish. He was half Jewish, half Edomian. His family had adopted Judaism about a half century before he started to rule. Herod started ruling around 37 BC. And we know that the calendar, the 80 BC, is not exactly in alignment with Christ's birth. And so Herod's died in 4 BC. Jesus was born sometime before that. Herod had begun his political career, and he was in Judea, and the Parthians came in and chased him out of town. And subsequent to that, around 37 AD, the Romans put him in charge as the king of the Jews, the king of Judea. Rome loved him because he quelled any uprising from the Jews. He kept his friends close. He kept his enemies even closer. When one of his enemies or supposed threats, his brother-in-law started to gain popularity in Jerusalem, that guy mysteriously drowned in a pool. He had him drowned. Even he had multiple wives and multiple sons, and even Herod had some of his own sons murdered because he mistakenly thought they opposed him. You see, Herod's kingdom and his rule was preserved through manipulation, oppression, and murder. If an uprising threatened his rule, he put it down. If a person threatened his throne, he put them down. That was that king of the Jews, the false king. And it's that king in verse 4, we see, who assembles all of the chief priests and scribes, those who would be familiar with the Old Testament and the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And he inquired of them, where the Messiah, where the Christ, where the anointed one, the one who was promised, the one who was promised to come and to bring the everlasting rule and reign, to deliver the people of Israel from oppression. Where is he supposed to be born? But understanding his, the way Herod has ruled in his kingdom, though the wise men don't understand his motives, we begin to understand what his motives truly are here. He, he finds out from the chief priests and the scribes that it was in verse 5, Bethlehem, where the Messiah was to be born. And they reference Micah, the prophet, the 8th century prophet, Micah 5.2, uh, in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This false king is already plotting what he will do about the new supposed king. In contrast, we have the baby. 
What's interesting about this text is you see Herod positioning himself, manipulating, inquiring, gathering intel, figuring out how I'm going to deal with this issue. But in this text, we see Jesus doing nothing, simply being. He's simply a baby in his mother's arms. One king insecure, the other king perfectly secure. In fact, you could even say in his human nature, perfectly unawares. Jesus is the true king, Herod the false king. Herod was a king appointed by Rome who kept his kingdom by manipulation and murder. Jesus is a king by birth. You see, Matthew, in his gospel, he starts his gospel with the things that we typically like to skip when we read scripture, a genealogy. But what that genealogy does is it locates this child in the story of the kings, the royal line, the line of David. And we see the line of Judah portrayed in in chapter one. And in fact, Matthew's gospel opens with this statement, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We could even say, when you look at the way that Matthew uses the reference of Jesus and Christ together so infrequently, probably this is not Jesus Christ two names, but Jesus Christ title, Messiah, King. Furthermore, and underscored by the fact that he is called the son of David, the great king. And when you look at the genealogy, you see that it is the king's This is Matthew saying to us, the true king has come. The one who is king by birth, unlike Herod. He is the Christ. And in fact, Herod makes the connection. When the wise men show up, they say, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod makes the connection. He's talking about, they're talking about the Messiah. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In verse four, the Christ, Christ being the Greek title for the Hebrew title, Messiah. Where is he supposed to be born? Jesus is this true king, the Christ, the Messiah. And as the prophecy says from 700 plus years prior, he's the one, verse six, who would be the ruler of Judah and a shepherd of God's people. Both titles being titles or monikers of a king. King Herod is troubled. King Jesus is probably sleeping. In his divinity, he reigns supreme. In his humanity, he lies in his mother's lap, peaceful and unawares. Jesus is not actively doing anything in this passage. He's simply being the Messiah. But what's interesting when you contrast these two kings is though Herod is troubled presently and Jesus is not, there would come a day, a night in fact, where our king would be troubled, where he would carry a trouble in his soul, not because of feeling threatened in his reign, but because of carrying the sorrows and the guilt and the burden of our sin. That would trouble him, but not on this night. Herod took out the life of others who threatened his throne 
as a false king, Jesus would lay down his life to welcome others in his kingdom as a true king. He is the true king for you. So that leads us to the order and the disorder. There's three different emotional responses present here by those in this text. We read about one or considered one, or we just mentioned one with Herod in verse three. He says that he was troubled at the announcement of this king. We also see that all of Jerusalem was troubled and it's not really clear why or what their impetus was. It could be because of the instability around Herod and how he was such a temperamental person. If there was a threat to his throne, that would be trouble for all of Jerusalem. As a result, that could be the case. We don't know for sure. But we can know from which much, which much greater certainty why Herod was troubled. He felt threatened. He felt that this new king would bring disorder to him. It would potentially upend, and it would, his rule. That was one emotional response. But the other, the second emotional response, I think quite appropriately, is not really listed. It's just demonstrated. You see, Herod brought into the circle the religious elite, the chief priests and the scribes. And if they were truly about God's heart and students of his word, which they were students of his word, the thought of the king, the Christ being born, you would think they would have said to these wise men, hey, we're going to go with you. But that's not what happens. The only ones who depart from Jerusalem to go find the king are the wise men. In verse 9. So we could say, Herod was troubled. The chief priests and the scribes, these religious elite, they were indifferent. The sin of indifference. Herod is, Herod is, is, is like us in the sense that, you know, I think I'd rather just be king then let someone else be king. The chief priests and the scribes are like us whenever we commit the sin of indifference about the reality of who Jesus is. But then we have the wise men. They have great joy. In verse 9 through 11, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that he had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great Joy. Why the differences in the responses? Well, the reason for the differences, I think what we could say is, one, whether they believed Jesus to be the true king or not. Herod clearly thought, oh, I'm supposed to be king. I need to protect this. The religious elite, though they may not have been fans of Herod per se, perhaps they were jockeying for the status quo. Uh, this other king, probably not going to go well for us. Let's just play it cool. But what is so provoking about these wise men, it's not just that they are wise men, it's where they're from. They're not from around here. They're from east. And we don't know exactly how far east, but some would say Persia, others might say Babylon, they're not Israelites. They, they, they didn't grow up going to synagogue. 
or visiting the temple. These men were pagans. And how they knew exactly, well, we know that there was a star that they followed, but how they connected the dots to what that star represented, we don't fully know. Perhaps it was from centuries before during the Jewish diaspora, the invasions of the Assyrians or the Babylonians and the Jewish people were spread abroad and then their, um, their word spread as a result to the nations and therefore it could be that this was just a remnant of that, that they had found out about there was one day going to be a Messiah. And, but we don't really know. But we do know that they worshiped and they had joy. So, so there's, there's three responses. So, so Herod, Herod is like all who feel threatened by the presence of the true king. His order is going to disrupt my order, and therefore it is disorder. You see, our world says that the king of kings, the king of all kings, is the sovereignty of the autonomous self. The king of all kings is me, right? It's my way. It's me being me. You be you, I'll be me. That is the king of all kings in our society. But there's a new king. Herod is is like our world that says the sovereignty of the autonomous self is king. The religious elite who are indifferent, yes, it is, it's, it, is, it is like us who commit the sin of indifference toward Jesus the Messiah. But Matthew points this out, fair to say, as a harbinger of the type of conflict this king, Jesus, would have subsequent. In the, in the rest of the gospel account. It's the religious elites that he's, he's going to be in conflict with. And we see the nascent form of that here in the text. But these wise men is puzzling because of all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the most insider of all the gospels would be Matthew. Yet who does Matthew show as the ones who come to worship the king? outsiders. It's the message that the tr- this king, the true king, yes, he is the king of the Jews, but moreover, he is the king of the nations, and he is drawing the nations to his light. You see, Jesus, the king of the Jews, there are so many prophecies about him. In Numbers 24, 17, this is on the lips of uh, Balaam. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. A star, Jesus, we saw the star, we see the star in the text and there is a star. Jesus is that star. A star would bring, Isaiah uh, chapter 60 verses, uh, verse three, it says that the, there, would, there would be a light to the nations and the nations would come to his light. This is a fulfillment of these prophecies. The star has come and now the nations are coming. His reign brings order to the nations and they're drawn to him. And in, of all the sort of most, of, of all the gospels, the most insider, if you will, the most Jewish, if you will, starts its account with the nations coming and ends its account in chapter 28 with Jesus telling the disciples, go unto all the nations. This is a pronouncement 
of the nature of this king's kingdom. He is king of, he is king of all. He is Lord of all. His order will order the nations. But Herod is right to, be, to feel threatened because Jesus doesn't just bring order. He actually brings disorder as well. What do I mean? He brings disorder to yours and my attempt to reign on the throne of our hearts. He brings disorder to that. He brings disorder. If you follow him, he will bring disorder to your life because he says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up a cross. That's not a symbol of comfort. (coughs) He brings disorder, but he brings order. You see, because he says, for the one who is sorrowful, for the one who's mourning, blessed is, are those who mourn. He brings order to our life beset with sorrows and mourning, as he himself was a man of sorrows. And though the life that we live following him is not always filled with comfort, he promises that one day we will have ultimate comfort when his kingdom is fully realized. He brings disorder if you follow him in the sense that you now become in opposition to the world that is in rebellion against him. And therefore, you inherit persecution. You become a disciple like the teacher who was persecuted. In fact, later in his gospel in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to set family members against one another because there is an order in this world of rebellion against me, yet I am setting things right, and therefore there will be discord and disorder, even in families, as a result. Yet in all of this order and disorder, there's ultimate order that he brings. He brings order into our lives and into your life by reestablishing the presence of God with you. At the end of the, the last thing Jesus says that he will do is to be with you. In this gospel account in chapter 28, the last thing he says, lo, I will be with you even until the end of the ages. The order that Jesus brings is God being reconciled back to man in the closest of proximities. His spirit comes alive in those who follow him. And though we live in this tension of order and disorder in this life, there is ultimate order when Jesus has promised to return and he says, I will gather my elect from the four winds. And all that is disrupted, all that is disordered about this world, I will make right. That's the disorder and order of our king. Herod was right to feel threatened, yet the wise men were wiser to come and worship. What does this mean? It means for us this morning as we anticipate Christmas, celebrating tomorrow on this Christmas Eve, you have to decide who really is king of your heart. Who's the true king of your heart? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Herod made a decision. The religious elites made a decision. The wise men made a decision. What's yours? Who rules? 
You have to decide whether to embrace the order of Jesus Christ and endure the disorder caused by being his follower. What do I mean by that? Well, I suppose it would be hard for me to make it through uh, this text without finishing the year without another reminder from a Russian novel. (laughs) In Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov, the main character, it's widely known that this doesn't ruin the book. He does commit murder, okay? That's kind of what Dostoevsky is about. There are two threats to Raskolnikov upon his committal of murder. One is a character who represents justice. The other character is another character who later on who will represent mercy for him. Two threats. Why are those two threats? Well, because... On the one hand, Raskolnikov, he's committed murder, but he's trying to play it cool. He's trying to keep it straight. He's trying to be elusive and guarded and self-preserving and not get caught. Yet there's this detective who seems to be catching on, and therefore there's a threat to his freedom in the midst of his sin. But there's another threat and there's another issue because as a result of his sin, you see Raskolnikov becomes harder and harder and more distant and more removed from those around him. He becomes colder. He becomes more distant. Yet there's another character, a love interest, who threatens that with mercy. And that, those dual threats are the nature of this new king. It is both in his person that he threatens with justice and with mercy. And the reason why we end up wanting to worship and bring the treasures of our heart to him like these wise men is because both of those threats were brought together on the cross justice, and mercy. He exposes our, your sin, yet he died for it. He exposes your false kingship, yet he died for all of its ramifications so that he could be your true king. This king absorbed the guilt and sorrow of your sin so that he could embrace you and offer you mercy. This reality invites you to worship him and bring him the treasures of your heart in response. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that Christmas is about a king who came. And our present reality is about you as king who reigns. And yet, Lord, there is still a decision whether... In each of our hearts, you truly reign. And who truly is king? And I pray, Lord, that the story of Christmas, which could easily just be a recycled, I heard that before, I know that, yes, I've heard the songs. But I pray rather that it would be a story that provokes us. Much like Herod, who was provoked and troubled of heart, there's a threat here. Lord, may we push past that trouble of heart and see the, the beauty of who you are like those who are wise men and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.